Millions of Americans are finding creative ways to work from home right now. Working from home, that is the new normal. It is far from clear how soon people can, will, or should go back to their workplace. All right, just give me one second. The cat is crying. I'm afraid he's going to be on the recording. Here, go upstairs. I mean, I'm happy to use this Zoom background, and every time I used it in the beginning, people were like, wow, you have a really nice apartment. Sorry. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Fortune Brainstorm, the podcast about how tech is reshaping our world. I'm Fortune senior writer Michal Avram. And I'm Fortune deputy editor Brian O'Keefe. Michal, I never thought we'd be starting a podcast from our apartments. It's a, it's a surprise to me as well, for sure. In my, in my imagination, our podcast would be broadcast live from the top of the Empire State Building. That sounds glamorous and not really viable. And of course, there are plenty of things I'm doing now that I never assumed I'd be doing this year, like working from home full time. Definitely. That's why we thought working from home would be the perfect topic for our first episode. And what we're hoping to do here every week is to really show our audience how technology is changing our lives and how the changes in our lives are also changing technology today. We also want to tell people the stories of the people behind that technology who are driving that change. So today you're going to hear from a couple of experts on remote work. Darren Murph works for a company called GitLab, and his job title is literally head of remote. Yeah, <laughs> I did write the, uh, the handbook to working remotely. And Aparna Bawa is the COO of Zoom. We've always used Zoom as a verb. I mean, we are Zoom, so of course we Zoom. So Michal, long before most of us started living our lives on Zoom, you were reporting on the company. Silicon Valley's full of startups, but what made Zoom take off this year? Well, Zoom was really taking off before the pandemic. Of course, it's totally accelerated its growth, uh, you know, over the last six or seven months. But um, it, it entered into a really crowded category back in 2011 when it launched. Um, there were all sorts of, I mean, from Google and, and, you know, FaceTime and Microsoft and you name it. There were all sorts of other apps that were doing what Zoom does. But I think what made it really stand out and ultimately take off is that it was just so much easier to use. You know, you didn't have to install anything. They put some, you know, fun little features in it too, but it, it just, it was simple and easy and people in Silicon Valley just started using it constantly as like the, you know, the the default video conferencing app. And then when the pandemic hit, everybody else started using it too. Yeah, I think it's one of those overnight success stories that's years in the making. And it really has exploded. In the second quarter this year, they had more than four times as much revenue as they did all of last year. It's really extraordinary. It's crazy. You and others have done a great job reporting on some of the challenges facing Zoom since the pandemic started. But what I really wanted to know was how was their own transition to working from home going? And I got to ask Zoom COO Aparna Bawa about that. I will tell you, it's a bit different than working in the office in the sense that, you know, if you're going into a meeting with someone in a conference room, you have to get up and walk there. I find that when you work from home, you have to be a little bit more intentional about taking time to take care of yourself because, you know, I'm in my house. My house is not the square footage of the office, obviously. You know, I don't get up and walk as much as I used to. You know, even going to the parking lot is not a thing right now, especially because it's been so busy at Zoom. You know, the entire company has been working pedal to the metal for the last six to seven months. 
And so it has been, that part has been challenging. I'm just curious if you have learned lessons in this period about how to work from home better, you know, using your product and how you as an executive and a manager make sure that you don't lose that other stuff that you might lose as great as your Zooming technology might be. So first of all, it starts with a consistent work routine. You get up in the morning, have your breakfast, get fully ready. Now in in California, we're a little bit casual. We're not going to put on button down shirts and suits, but if I had to, I would, you know, if I worked in financial services in New York, I probably would. It's those kinds of things that can really help. The other thing I would say as a manager, it's not forgetting to check in. You know, when we're all sitting together or we're, you know, catching up with each other in the kitchen over lunch, you know, just in the lunch line, there's that, that spark, that human connection. And you have to be much more intentional, especially as a leader. So for example, I prioritize my one-on-ones with the team. It's so easy just to say, okay, well, it's so busy right now. Oh, well, let's push that one-on-one to later in the week or next week, et cetera. I have made that a priority because without that check-in, you can lose sight of what's really important in solving those problems for your customers. I just want to try to get a couple of pro tips from you on actual Zoom etiquette and execution. I see our listeners can't see you, but you're you're appearing with a Zoom background. Do you switch it up? Do you have like a, a fun background for outside meetings and a work background for work meetings? You're going to laugh. I'm, I'm literally sitting in the little hallway outside our pantry. <laughs> the reason I am here is because when the pandemic struck, my husband's job was crazy. And so he first took our shared office and we realized we can't both be on Zoom meetings at the same time. And so I took this little sub desk that's outside our pantry. And I ended up loving it because I can hear what's going on in the kitchen. So I can always get a sense of what the kids are up to with <laughs> one year, even though, you know, it's a mom all the time in one year and then work on the other. So I love it. I have my headset, which uh, and I use the noise cancellation feature that we just announced. And so nobody can hear the dog barking or the kids screaming. That's great. I've already tested that out. Sometimes I take off the virtual background because people want to know where you are, who you are. The other thing that's critical is... When you're talking face-to-face, you can easily interrupt someone and they know what's going on. When you're on Zoom, it's a little muddled. So it forces us to all listen to each other carefully, make sure we don't interrupt each other, let the person actually get their thought out before starting your idea. That's another thing that I've noticed that I'm getting better at. And this is forcing me to sort of be patient, do a little bit more listening and take my time. I'm curious... Uh, I mean, it's hard to imagine that your your husband's job could have been too much crazier during the pandemic than than your own, <laughs> given the rocket ride that Zoom has been on. And you were promoted to chief operating officer, I believe, in June. Yeah. This kind of moment for a company is like the dream scenario, but maybe kind of a little bit of a nightmare scenario in a way to have like the entire world suddenly wants to use your product but you can't fail. You don't want to blow that moment when everybody is talking about your product and using it and integrating it into their day-to-day lives. How has that all been to handle, you know, and not really have time to kind of slow down and think much about the direction you're just trying to keep up maybe with the, the freight train? I'm sorry. I was sort of thinking back to that time saying, how did we do this? That time three months ago. three <laughs> feels like eons ago. I would say it's very it actually boils down to some few simple concepts. Number one, for us, responding to the pandemic 
has never been about the numbers. Of course, the numbers are great. I mean, it would be disingenuous to say we don't relish the fact that our numbers have been good. Of course we do. No company in their right mind would turn these kinds of numbers away. But from the beginning, when I even go back to that initial decision to offer K through 12 services for free during this time to provide online education and continuity for kids in education, it's always been about a value that's been beyond core business. So it made sense to do that. And there was no question about, okay, how are we going to host all of these people? What's it going to mean to the bottom line, et cetera? It was the right thing to do to provide connectivity and continuity for kids in school during this period of abnormalcy. And then you're right, we did have some challenges. But when you're faced with challenges, what are you going to do? Are you going to sit there and fret or are you going to deal with them? And I think our company has always been biased towards action. It is, starting at the top, very biased towards openness and transparency, which admittedly gives a lawyer a lot of heartburn. (laughs) But when you realize that these are core values that are fundamental to this business, it becomes very clear what you need to do. And so, yes, it has been immensely stressful, immensely stressful. Brian, I'm not going to lie to you. I think there were days that, or weeks, where I would just go 7 a.m., midnight, 2 a.m., you know, time frame, turn around, do it again, 7 a.m., 2 a.m., 7 a.m., 2 a.m., Monday through Sunday, no break in sight. And it's been that way for quite a while. So thinking about where we go forward from here, I mean, we all hope and uh, like to imagine a future post-vaccine, post uh, the worst of the pandemic, where we can get back to a more normal way of life. How are you imagining the product for that future time where, you know, we're not necessarily locked at home where we can get back, but we've gone through this whole period where people have gotten used to, you know, collaborating in different ways? So, Brian, even before the pandemic and these work from home mandates with employers, we've seen significant moves towards a distributed workforce. You know, there was a Dell survey recently that came out 90% of Gen Z workers prefer to choose their own work location. That may not have been practical for companies prior to pandemic, but seeing what is possible over Zoom has really changed corporate outlook. We see that in our customer base. It has actually changed our own outlook as to what is possible. And working becomes more of a way to improve productivity and it involves different formats. What is clear to me is We are entering a new way of working, of collaborating. So Brian, what do you think? Is remote work really going to become more mainstream? I think it will. I think, you know, there's been predictions that working from home and using video would become more ingrained for many years now. And I think the pandemic, because it's forced so many people to adjust and adapt to this, will create some lasting change. I think this will be woven in and there'll be less travel. But at the same time, I don't think there's a total replacement for the magic that comes from being in person with other people and having unexpected interactions and and the spontaneity of that. So I don't think working in the office is going away either. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I think it's 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 going to be different for some companies. There'll be, you know, some things you go into the office for, some things you don't. And I know some companies are embracing it very wholeheartedly. But I, I think it's going to be some, 
you know, more flexibility for the most part. But um, I, I do know someone who thinks that we all should be working remotely all the time, or at least most of us, and that's Darren Murph, the head of remote at GitLab. He has pretty much worked remotely his entire career. And Brian, get this, before he moved to GitLab, he was a tech journalist, and during that time, he earned a Guinness World Record for being the world's most prolific blogger. When the record was bestowed, it was 17,000 blog posts over four years. So that averaged out to an article being published every two hours for four consecutive years. That is really insane. His job now uh, is really interesting, though. I bet a lot of people aren't familiar with this company. It's actually a really interesting company. So, you know, they've been fully remote from the get-go, their entire existence. They have not a single office, even though they've got employees across 65 different countries. Um, and the product, I mean, it kind of makes sense because the product is actually, it's a set of tools that developers use to um, collaborate and and basically, like, host their code. And so it's really made for people who can do their jobs remotely. And that's what GitLab is, and that's what it sells. And what does being head of remote entail exactly? Well, it's kind of a work in progress, I think, for Darren. So he um, he's the one at the company thinking about how their processes, their culture, you know, everything that they do, how they hire people, um, you know, how does that, how is that impacted because they're remote? And he really thinks of fresh approaches to to doing this because running a remote company is not like running a, you know, quote unquote, normal company. Um, you know, he's also kind of become the the primary evangelist for the company because, again, their product sells more the more, you know, other companies are remote as well. So at the end of the day, he, he really just wants people to know that um, figuring out how to make remote work a positive experience for everyone isn't easy, but it's doable and they hope more people will do it. Look, remote work is significant. There's a lot of nuance to it. This is completely re-architecting how you think about work, how communication happens, how informal communication happens. Leadership needs to be bought in. So there are a lot of connected pieces that go into making remote work. And it's not something that is easily done. You certainly can't do it overnight. It is very much a journey of iteration. And it's made more difficult in a world where quarantine and isolation are happening because in-person interaction matters and it's a critical part of remote, but that even that is difficult for remote teams right now. I think you're bringing up a really good point here because the way that a lot of us have fallen into remote work now, it's kind of clouded by, you know, a public health crisis. And what you are trying to, to teach or espouse is not how to make it work necessarily through all of these outside challenges, but how to make it work long term. Can you talk about kind of high level? What are some of the guiding principles? Because I know transparency is one of them. Why is transparency specifically so important when you're remote? So transparency and documentation, we'll talk about those two, but I want to talk about one other prerequisite, which is buy-in from leadership from the very top. If you have an executive team that still gets together in a boardroom and makes decisions in a vacuum and isn't transparent and it doesn't work remote first, doesn't communicate out on digital mediums, all subsequent communication will eventually end up 
modeling what is necessary for the executives to operate. And that's why GitLab actually recommends to get executives out of the office. And as we're working with and consulting with companies, we're recommending that whenever the office does open back up, don't let the executives be the first ones to rush back in. Ideally, have a few of them completely relocate. Send them across an ocean. Like ask any of them if they want to live on Lake Como or in Kenya or Zanzibar. You know, just just pick a point on the map and intentionally banish them. Yeah, essentially, you know, give them this amazing luxury of being able to live somewhere else. Uh, but all kidding aside, it forces communication to go remote first. And we have a specific guide on remote first forcing functions. And the word forcing is intentional. There are some things that we do, we expire our Slack messages after 90 days, etc., that force us to work remote first. And you need a certain amount of those in your company. And transparency is another one. We are public by default. We have metrics on how many Slack messages are public versus private. We want people to contribute their work transparently so that people around the organization know what's going on. And it goes hand in hand with handbook first. So we document everything. We encourage self-service. We have people in over 65 countries, almost every time zone accounted for. You can never assume that anyone is awake. And we want to force as many asynchronous workflows as possible because it's efficient, but also it's inclusive. It takes into account that people have real lives and if we don't have to tap them on the virtual shoulder as much, they're freer to do great, deep, creative work. So there's there's a lot that goes into it. I get that it, for most companies, this is really daunting to hear things like this. And it's why I encourage taking one step at a time, building a remote roadmap. Just try to get better quarter over quarter. And a year or two down the road, you'll look back and think, hey, this was actually a, a bit easier than we thought. We wish we would have done it earlier. At its core, these things add discipline and cohesion to any company. And even if you go back to the office, who wouldn't want to work with more discipline and cohesion? So speaking of iterative steps that companies can take in order to make remote work work better, you have a lot of guidelines on how to best use Slack for those of us who use it, including when to use direct messages, which are private messages, one-to-one or or one-to-several, and when to record your communications in channels, which are public, where there's documentation. So can you explain how you approach Slack a bit? So yes, uh, for Slack, we expire all of our messages after 90 days, and we do that for a couple of reasons. One, we wanna force work to happen in GitLab. That is our single source of truth of where work happens. And you know, if you put a four paragraph missive in Slack, it's just gonna vanish in three months. And so you're not gonna do that. So it helps funnel work where work needs to happen. But the secondary benefit is it creates an amazing medium for informal communication. We have topical channels. We have a parenting channel right now that is incredibly beautiful to watch. We have parents all over the world and they're able to connect with each other as humans, not as colleagues and talk about the realities of having a kid at home with virtual learning and they're able to help each other out. In a remote setting, if you don't have this forcing function, will people really be comfortable having those very vulnerable and authentic conversations? By doing this, it gives people a medium to do it. You talk about how you use bots, which are these automated little AI machines in Slack that you can basically program to do whatever you want them to do. And you have a bot that just says, hi, and you talk about how it doesn't say, hi, guys. It says, hi, y'all. 
And for those of us who aren't in North Carolina, what should we learn from that? And talk about the importance of, again, it's transparency and it's communication, but it's keeping inclusivity in mind because that's important whether you're in or out of the office, of course. Completely. Yeah. So we have a Slack bot that if it detects anyone saying the typical hi guys or hey guys, it will then do an auto response and say, hey, it appears that you're saying hi guys, but you should probably consider a more inclusive term, things like y'all. We also have... So this is actually the bot's function. The bot's function is to basically remind people. Yeah, the bot's function is to remind people that you're in a professional workspace and we should all strive to be inclusive in everything that we do. And so it may seem like something small, but it all starts there. If you can get that driven into your brain, you're constantly thinking about working inclusively. And of course, this is also documented in our handbook and things like at channel and at here that most people just use. We actually have a bot that will remind people not to do that. And it will link over to the GitLab handbook that further explains why we don't do that. It's not very inclusive to just be blowing up people's slack because you're potentially pulling them away from their kids or bath time or anything. No one is in the office. You have no idea what their real life is asking of them at any given moment. And one of our sub values is family and friends first and work second. And we mean it. And when you see bots like this helping us do that, it reinforces that we really mean it. We even created a bot that helps you remember to take time off. At the beginning of every month, you can opt into a direct message that says, hey, it's the beginning of the month. Hopefully you've considered taking some time off and recharging this month. If you haven't and you're uncomfortable doing so, please copy and paste this message into your next one-on-one. So we literally use technology to give you permission to ask your manager to help you. We believe that a rest ethic is just as important as a work ethic. If you look at the creative process, 50% of it can only be done with rest. It's kind of like inhaling and exhaling. If you only do one or the other forever, at some point, that's going to catch up to you. So we look at the technology as best we can to help us remember that. And in an all remote setting, you need to do that. You just you can't just tap people on the shoulders. Uh, thankfully, we have the technology to help us. Okay, listeners, we thought it'd be fun to take a moment in the show and share a little tech advice. Here are a few insights from some of Fortune's tech reporters about things they've found particularly useful while working from home. One of the tools I've become more dependent on since working from home is my Google Home. I use it to set audio reminders, to break up my day a little bit and tell me to get up, get a glass of water, to take a walk. My most important work from home tool is also my most important office tool, more screen space. A little Wi-Fi extender from Netgear that we can plug in outside the window and sit in the backyard and get Wi-Fi and work because during COVID, we are feeling very cooped up. If I had to pick one tech tool I've grown to love the most through the pandemic, it is hands down and without question, Otter AI. Otter is a service that not only records audio and phone calls, it instantly and automatically transcribes them. I've never proceeded faster from a free trial to a premium plan. That was Danielle Abriel, David Morris, Aaron Pressman, and Robert Hackett. Mahal, before we wrap up, I want to ask you a question. Do you like working from home? So... 
The answer is very different. Are you asking with my kids around or with my kids in school? Because <laughs> that's that's what I've 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 realized. You know, I I worked from home a bit before uh, the pandemic, and it was an entirely different experience. We've all just been forced into it. And, you know, everything around us, like so much of the infrastructure that we relied on before for our daily lives uh, has has shifted so drastically. And so, no, I don't like working from home when everybody's vying for space and my kids are on their Zooms and, you know, my toddler's preschool is shut down and it's just madness all the time. But I do like working from home when I'm not disrupted. (laughs) What about you, Brian? And by the way, I love my kids. <laughs> you have great kids, so that doesn't surprise me. I've never been a work-from-home guy. I've always liked going into the office, seeing people, getting out of the house, and I've found it much easier to concentrate and be productive. But right now, we don't have much of a choice. So I'm adapting, maybe a little slowly, but I think we're all adapting. All right. Well, thanks for listening, everyone. We'll be back next week with more talk on how tech is reshaping our world. Are you still going to be at home, Brian? Yep, I'll still be here in my apartment. The Brainstorm Podcast is a production of Fortune Media. Our show is produced by Wyatt Orm and edited by Wyatt Orm and Nicole Vargala. Music is by Brian Campbell of Signal Sounds. Executive producers are Mason Cohn and Megan Arnold.